Hi everyone, welcome back to the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and I want to thank you all for tuning in to the second episode. Our first episode with Joshua Collins has received a very warm reception, and I greatly appreciate each and every one of you for your feedback and your early support. Joining me in this episode is Hermania Rodriguez, a Venezuelan journalist based in the United States. We covered a lot of ground in this one, given her unique insight growing up in a family of journalists in Venezuela. And I think you'll come away learning more about the nuances of the crisis in the country. Now, I do apologize ahead of time for the sound quality. We had some technical difficulties and recorded on Skype, but rest assured, we have a great and extremely informative episode for you all nonetheless. So without further ado, this is episode two of the State of Venezuela, featuring Hermania Rodriguez. Today on the podcast, I have with me a journalist from Venezuela based in the United States. She's the editor for an editor for The Independent. She also works with Factores de Poder, a YouTube channel that is basically for Venezuelans in Spanish. You can also find her work in Caracas Chronicles, The Daily Mail. You know, we're living in a situation that is so, so complicated that it requires people who are able to articulate the situation and explain it in English. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Hermania Rodriguez. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you for having me. I love any project that focuses on Venezuela. It's so important. You're very welcome. So um, I'm wondering if we could first get started by having you first explain a little bit about your background, what it is that you do, and a little bit about your profession. Sure. So I am from Venezuela, like you said, and I lived there until I was 11 because I come from a family of journalists. My grandpa, uh, had a newspaper and a magazine. My mom is also a, a very renowned journalist. And uh, she had to leave Venezuela about almost 15 years ago. She was one of the first uh, journalists persecuted by the Hugo Chavez regime. She was actually accused of terrorism and had to leave Venezuela on a boat to Curaçao and from Curaçao to complain to the U.S. This is when no one even, people internationally were still praising Chavez um, when we had to leave. So I've, I lived in Miami since I was 11. I, until I went to college in, at NYU, I studied broadcast journalism and politics. And I've interned at CNN, MSNBC, Rolling Stone. I worked at the Daily Mail uh, when I got out of college. I wasn't too into that. It was a lot of aggregation. And I really cared about talking about the Venezuelan uh, issue, the tragedy. Um, that we've been living for over two decades. So I decided to quit that and go independent. And uh, I started growing a following on social media that's allowed me now to kind of publish wherever I want and have a little more independence. Yeah, I should also preface that you can find her on Twitter as well on I am Hermania. I'll have that also written in the description of the podcast when it launches. Um, I want to go back to what you had mentioned before about starting your journey uh, your journalism profession here in the United States. So as you know, one of the biggest challenges with me and I think with Venezuelans in general is trying to explain in depth what is going on over there because there are so many lies 
that have basically entrenched the regime's position for the past 20 years that it makes your job and the job of journalists in general so difficult. Correct. Well, the thing is that Chavismo is at least 15 years ahead of us because they have been putting money into their international image since the moment Chavez stepped into Miraflores with projects like Telesur, giving money to uh, Hollywood filmmakers like uh, Oliver Stone, who made a really brilliant piece of propaganda called South of the Border. So while Chavez was setting these stones to protect his image, uh, there was nothing to counter that view. The opposition has never had a good uh, propaganda machine internationally. The left in general has always been better received um, in the first world. So we are now just starting, especially with Venezuelan Americans like myself, I think, who can both understand the situation in Venezuela and understand how we can explain it to a first worlder so they can understand it. Just We're just now starting to tell our story and it's not just journalists, it's everyday people, Venezuelan Americans who go on Twitter and like start wars against the tankies who from the first world um, wanna say that Chavez was awesome. So we're just now starting to catch up with Chavista propaganda that has over 20 years uh, being funded. Absolutely. And what steps do you guys take to overcome it? Because based on what I see, the, the tankies, that entire uh, coalition, you are right. They they stop at nothing. They're, they really are the loudest among everybody speaking about the situation in Venezuela in English. And it's really a tragedy. Yes, because for, again, for 20 years, they were just speaking in English lies and there was no one to respond to them. But, you know, more so than just the tankies, I think... For my job, the hardest thing is trying to show people the nuance because believe it or not, the on, the far left is not the only problem. Um, the far right is a problem too, particularly in societies like ours, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Cubans, uh, Iranians, who you know have a trauma with a movement that calls itself a leftist movement or let's say a far leftist movement. And they start seeing things in black and white. And so my career goal is really being able to show everyone the the part that they miss, the grays. I often find myself playing devil's advocate. So if I'm talking to a Venezuelan, I'm trying to explain to them that the far right does indeed exist. If I'm talking to a first worlder, I'm usually trying to explain that no, Chavismo isn't actually an amazing progressive movement and the far left is actually a huge problem as well. Absolutely. That's something that I've noticed as well. I've seen it time and time again, not just in Venezuela. I've seen people sort of cheerleading the the episodes of oppression in places like Hong Kong. Yes, and it's often a privileged person like Oliver Stone, Danny Glover, like all the Hollywood people that love to praise dictators, Latin American ones particularly. And I want to ask you, uh, Hermania, why do you think that is? Because you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm noticing that trend and it just it makes no sense to me, especially when these people probably couldn't name one other city, God forbid, another state outside of Caracas in Venezuela. It makes no sense to me, really. It's a question that I've been pondering on for a while. Why is it that the more privileged you are, the more left you go? Um, I think I hate saying it because I had a great time at one of the most liberal universities in the world, NYU. But 
expensive universities have a lot to do with it. I mean, I was basically brainwashed until my senior year, even though I'm from Venezuela. But, you know, I had professors who were clearly all liberal, like explaining to me that the U.S. was the big, biggest evil in the world and showing me books like Open Veins of Latin America. You know, that's the perspective that you are presented with at American prestigious universities. And it's, it's, it really is a process of brainwashing. And if you as an individual don't take it upon yourself to look out for the other side, you end up believing a version of the world that really does not exist. I mean, these people really think that they are oppressed in the US. I mean, it's laughable. I think a lot of it also has to do with guilt uh, of their privilege, of their whiteness. You know, they want to be progressive. So in their mind, they're like, oh, well, I must hate on what I am to repent, you know? Yeah, it's becoming like a performative religion right now. When it comes to Venezuela, though, what what would you say, Hermania, is probably the biggest misconception that I wouldn't even just say these people, but most people have about the country in general? Like, what's one of those facts that yes. really draws them to the conversation and say, wow, I didn't know that. Please tell me more. The biggest misconception about the Venezuelan tragedy is that had Chavez not died, everything would be fine. That Chavez wasn't the problem, that the problem is Maduro. Because now we see a lot of characters like, um, what's this guy, the god of the left? Um, I was like ranting about him the other day. I can't think about it now. But, you know, we have a lot of international characters who have weight in the debate and they were praising Chavez the entire time that he was alive. So even now, if they want to, because you can no longer deny the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. So what can you do? You blame it on Maduro or you blame it on sanctions. And this has a phenomenon uh, called the praise for el chavismo originario, the original chavistas. So people want to promote this idea that the original Chavistas, people like Henry Falcón, etc., that they are the true revolution and the bad ones are those allied with Maduro. And, of course, people think that the problem just started three years ago. Again, no, this started the moment Chavez stepped foot in Miraflores. Yeah, that, you're, you're absolutely right. And if we're, if we're adopting terms from history, there's something called the, the conscientious objector somebody who basically pretends to not like war just because war is bad, but oh really- Oh my God, don't get me started. That's becoming a whole new thing. Like my, my ideology is against war, like Tulsi Gabbard. Excuse yes, me, regime- that's not a policy position. Like Borrowing from this quote from your article, by the way, it's called, like you mentioned, Will History Absolve Chavez? You can find it on caracaschronicles.com. Highly recommend because people really do need to understand that the role of Chavez is intrinsic in the role of the collapse of the country in general. You say that Chavez was a master media manipulator who spent millions of dollars to curate the parts of his persona and revolution he wanted to show to the world. And I wonder if you can expand on that, because as he rose, freedoms of speech were slowly being stripped from the Venezuelan people at the same time, right? Right. And... Um 
And this is actually a story that's not unique to Venezuela. It's a story of any populist establishing a dictatorship, whether it's a left-wing one or a right-wing one. Chavez did get to power with massive support because the country was polarized in many ways, like the U.S. is now. Um, and he immediately started using that support. I mean, he didn't even wait until winning. His promise was, I am going to dismantle everything about this country to replace it with something better that relies only on me. So with this speech, you know, the institutions are corrupt. The media is corrupt. Everything about this democracy is corrupt. So he asked the citizen at a moment when they supported him, vote so that we can destroy everything and give me all the power because only I can fix it. It's it's a lot like what's happening now with people denouncing the deep state here in, in the U.S., Chavez did the same thing, but with a different name, Los Adecos, Los Copellanos. They were the deep state that had to be dismantled. So as soon as Chavez got to power, people were excited. It was like a Bernie Sanders phenomenon. People were ready for a new country, and they supported Chavez's first moves into authoritarianism. So when he started taking over the state TV and had his own show, I mean, that's unheard of in an actual democracy. But people loved it. And within years of his presidency, he fired thousands of PDVSA employees and people cheered for him because they believed that everything was corrupt. And this guy, the one savior, was going to replace it with something better. And again, Chavez, we have to remember, Chavez has the support of Castro communism that had the support from the Soviet Union. So this is a KGB playbook. It teaches you how to take over every institution in the country from day one. And Chavez, he was a charismatic guy. People get angry when I say that. But I'm like, he cracked me up. You think he got to where he got because he didn't have charisma and didn't like pull on Venezuelans' hearts? He was a showman. And he knew exactly with projects like Telesur, an early move of his administration, uh, canceling the license for RCTV, one of the most critical channels, and replacing it with an, yet another state TV channel. Venezuela Analysis, uh, a website in English that these tankies continue to cite to go against Venezuelans, was funded by Chavez before anyone was talking about Venezuela. This is a, and when people say Chavistas are dumb, ignorant, no. This is a well-designed project. Absolutely. Um, and, and a couple of things to point out there. Uh, for my listeners who aren't aware, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Germania, when you say Copayanos and Adecos, that refers to the two-party system that had originated, I believe, in 1956 when there was something called the Pact of Punto Fijo. Exactly. So it was designed to prevent the... I want to say the carousel of dictatorships that had been occurring in Venezuela and South America as a whole for a long time. And it established, I want to say, 40 something odd years of democracy, which we was were great. the oldest democracy in South America until we lost it. And part of the reason that we lost it was that this idea that Venezuela is a petrostate dependent on oil and making up the vast majority of its economy did not originate with Chavez. I mean, it got much, much worse under Chavez, don't get me wrong, but Chavez came in and he said, I'm gonna denounce the two-party system, believe in me because I'm different. And as you note, Hermenia, people 
bought into that idea because it was so new and yeah. because I guess we're so susceptible to these false promises of populism, right? To be fair, I have a bit of a different perspective on that. I think Chavez did take advantage of the moment, but I think people were already pissed. Um, it's again a lot of similarities with what we're seeing in the U.S. It was the El Pacto de Punto Fijo was a power sharing agreement between two sectors right. of Venezuelan politics. It was good for the moment. They were uh, just trying to figure out how to start a republic after a dictatorship. But I think it lasted way too long. Um, Venezuelans, just like Americans are seeing now, said, okay, we've had the same two groups of people sharing power back and forth, but they're kind of the same because they were both social Democrats. So there was never any difference. And to go back to what you were saying about uh, the state was dependent on oil even before Chavez, that's correct. Um, I almost say Venezuela's cursed with too much because unfortunately for way too many years, the oil industry was enough to provide a social democracy that, I mean, people would admire still today. Like Venezuela was the social democracy that people like Bernie Sanders say they want back in the 70s. There was a social safety net. A lot of people like Venezuelan right-wingers say, in fact, that was the issue because the citizen was getting a costume to, you know, the father state taking care of everything. Because we had a social democracy before people even talked about social democracies being a thing. Mm -hmm. And another thing I wanted to actually ask you about so I follow your your feed and you're very much on top of what's going on now and what's been going on over the past year. Because as you know, Venezuelan history, you would need a book to cover maybe every five years. And this year alone would require its oh own book. And speaking of a book, the one I wanted to ask you about is I understand that you read former National Security Advisor John Bolton's book on his time in the White House, which features a chapter on Venezuela, right? I only read a chapter on Venezuela. I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit about what your reaction was, or maybe what the biggest surprise was in reading what you read, and maybe your general thoughts on the U.S. and its policy towards Venezuela for the past year or so. Yeah. Um, sadly, there was no surprises for me reading that book, just um, more proof of beliefs I already held based on previous information and witnessing what's been going on. Um, let's see, how can I go about this? Because I don't want to piss off uh, your listeners. So I want to like... <laughs> oh, no. Remember, most of my listeners are going to be either casual listeners from Venezuela who, well... I, I take that back. It's very hard to to be a casual observer when it comes to Venezuelan <laughs> politics if you're Venezuelan. So never mind. But I will say this: there are a lot of my listeners who aren't Venezuelan, and they just they don't want people cheering from one side. They want the truth. Right. And when it comes to politics in general, there are three truths, right? There's your truth, my truth, and the actual truth. So please, as they say today, go off. Right. Um, no, the thing is that I think to understand the Venezuela issue, the the Bolton Venezuela chapter and how different groups read it tells you so much about the problem. So I do want to touch on that. For many people, including, you know, like the Pan and Post types, what I would call the right-winger Venezuelans, uh, they read the book as Bolton in the book says that Trump asked about uh, a military operation many times, but that 
in the book, Bolton says that was crazy. I mean, anyone who understands American politics and even Trump's own base doesn't want a military intervention. Um, but Venezuelans got really excited at those lines that say Trump showed interest for a military intervention. There was, however, not a lot of mention of what I was noticing. First thing, I already knew the Venezuelan opposition, especially the Guaido Leopoldo Lopez faction, are both incredibly inept and corrupt. So I already knew that. But what I didn't understand is why the U.S. government, who should have the best intelligence in the world and the CIA and all of this, is relying on what Leopoldo Lopez says and adjusting their policy with that. I mean, if you read the book, it's incredible. Bolton describes that on the 30th of April, I don't know if there was like an attempted coup attempt that all it did was get Leopoldo Lopez out of house arrest. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. Well, apparently the Trump administration was literally relying on what the interim government told them. The, apparently, according to Bolton, they have no sort of independent uh, intelligence into the Venezuelan matter. I mean, it's clear that Trump has no idea how any of this works. We already knew that he, from other reporting, that he thought it was going to be easy to topple Maduro. It seemed like an easy mission. Venezuelans want it. The international community wants it. But of course, when you look into the history, you would quickly see that it wasn't going to be an easy situation. You would quickly see that it's not just Maduro, but the Castro dynasty and Putin and Erdogan and even like the Syria regime is involved in this, the Iranians, the Chinese. So clearly the Trump administration did not know what it was getting itself into when it decided to recognize Juan Guaido. One of the things that made me cringe is uh, Bolton describes uh, the meeting between Fabiana Rosales, Guaido's uh, partner in the White House. And he says that Fabiana Rosales told him, Bolton, oh my God, Bolton, we're so thankful for your support. Every time you tweet, the Venezuelan military shakes. <laughs> no and, kidding. And then one understands, well, if Bolton is hearing this from his number one source of intelligence, no wonder he was tweeting such BS. So in the book, we understand that the Trump administration, sorry, that the Guaido administration told the Trump administration that the military would turn against Maduro, that that was a fact. It was only a matter of time until it happened. And even as well in following the situation, anyone who understands the situation could have told you that that wasn't true. But for some reason, the Trump administration bought the story. Another interesting point is Putin's role in all of this. Because if we already know, although a lot of people don't accept that, but I tend to accept American intelligence as well as EU intelligence. And Putin himself, who next to Trump on camera said, yes, he was my candidate. I wanted him to win. Well, Bolton tells us that Putin called Trump to tell him that Guaido was the Venezuelan Hillary Clinton. And after that call, Trump seemed... Uh, unwilling to get farther involved with Venezuela. Trump also would periodically ask about a possible meeting with Maduro. So knowing that he met Kim Jong-un, no, knowing that he wanted to meet with the Taliban, what do we think about that as Venezuelans? Because as a Venezuelan citizen, I don't want to see him taking a picture with Maduro. I think it's very safe to say, really assessing the situation from all angles, that 
the stance, the policy could be really best described as a Pandora's box. You, you really never know what you're going to get. And for my listeners to sort of recap what uh, Hermania was talking about on April 30th of last year, if you'll remember, maybe you saw this in international news that day in Venezuela, there was a military uprising that featured a number of soldiers who pledged their loyalty to Juan Guaido. And that same day, they, um, I think, yeah, they released his his mentor. He was a former presidential candidate for Venezuela. Um, wow, the name is escaping me. What was it? Yes, Leopoldo Lopez. Thank you. It's important to know the people who breathe the Trump administration, everything Venezuela, are Leopoldo Lopez's people. So Leopoldo is the one that has the bridge with the Trump administration. So that day, I think, is very exemplary of the lapse in communication and where things really fell apart. But in short, the military uprising failed because the senior level members of Maduro's regime that the United States expected to switch sides either got cold feet at the last minute or they lied about their commitment to betray Maduro the entire time, right? The reporting on that um, is a little complex, but one of the things that uh, made the military or the leadership who had said they were going to switch sides, Leopoldo Lopez decided to do it one day ahead of time. And why was that again, Hermione? I don't, I don't remember the reason why they decided why to do it. Why did they push it? Yes. This is a good story. So... Um, two things came out of April 30th. Leopoldo Lopez's half freedom, he's now at an embassy, and um, Christopher Figuera um, leaves Venezuela in, and goes into exile. Christopher Figuera was the head of the, oh my, the I don't know if it was the, the Hesim or El Sevin, the top yeah. torturer, the top bad guy. So right. he was in this plan with Leopoldo Lopez. But he was getting uncovered. So in order to get Leopoldo Lopez out, they had to do it ahead of time because Christopher Figuera was being found out. So that's why they had to do it ahead of time. And now we have Christopher Figuera, a torture, criminal, murder, living happily in the United States, protected by the Trump administration. And it's kind of unfortunate, too, because I don't want to say that he's not helping right now. We don't know. I hope being made useful it would be a it, you're you're absolutely right it would be a deep shame if it turned out that at the end of the day he got his sanctions removed and he had his Cinderella story while the rest of the country it's ridiculous is, well yeah. we needed from him he had to do inside so he's not really i mean intelligence okay we already know that the Trump administration is relying on Guaido to tell him what's going on so so in your in your mind what would you say was probably the biggest failure or has been the biggest failure thus far of the interim presidency that has led us to this point where we're at a state of inertia, really, where we don't know what's happening next? That's a hard question because, like you said, so many things have gone wrong, and not just during this inter interim government, but throughout the Chavista dictatorship. Um, the opposition has failed us over and over again, and it's important for your audience to understand that the Venezuelan citizen has done his job, his and her job. They have gone out into the streets. They have done everything the leadership has asked them to do, and the leadership has like continuously failed them. To focus on Guaido and this new chapter of this tragedy, the first mistake was letting Voluntad Popular and Leopoldo Lopez having so much power over the person 
who would be recognized as leader in Venezuela for to more than 50 countries. Um, I when I saw that, you know, all Venezuelans got excited and myself included. I cried. I put my hand on my heart. I swore him in when he swore himself in. But in the back of my mind, I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, like we didn't know about him, but I did know whose party he was in. And I know a lot about Leopoldo Lopez because I've been in this mess because my family is in it since I was born. And Leopoldo Lopez was one of the central reasons why the attempted coup of 2002 didn't work out. So he's been messing up uh, regime change for us for a while now. The first mistake was that I think we needed a, a better deal, a coalition deal that included other figures like Vente Venezuela, Maria Corina Machado, um, El Alcalde eh, Ledesma. Sorry, I just switched, code switching. The Mayor Ledesma. So these are uh, Venezuelan politicians who, you know, are, are a little more um, hard in their stance. They believe that we need international help to uh, remove Maduro. Now, I'm not saying that's the way, but I think the coalition that was going to get in power should have had a bid of every important political faction in Venezuela. Then after he was sworn in, the, the day the humanitarian aid was supposed to go in Venezuela from Colombia. That was a mess. I hear more and more information from what happened that day, and it's truly embarrassing. Again, Bolton's chapter on Venezuela tells us that the Trump administration was relying on information from the Guaido administration that had assured them that the aid was going to go in, everything was figured out. This has always been the story from Guaido to the Trump administration. No, it's all figured out. They're going to switch sides. We're going to get the aid in. Of course, anyone who has been watching the situation can tell you that was not going to be the case. Um, that day, uh, many presidents from the region were there to support Guaido. It was a huge lost opportunity. I just heard an anecdote that's so embarrassing. Uh, Chile's president, Sebastián Piñera, traveled to Colombia to support Guaido. And at one moment, when no one had a plan, the aid wasn't going in, Sebastián Piñera grabs Guaido and tells him, Mr. President, I came here to support you. What is the plan? There was no plan. Oh my gosh. I, I didn't even know that last part. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Hermania. It's it's a missed opportunity because now they're having to deal with their own internal struggles apart from COVID and that international coalition that we had, like the Lima group, for my listeners, by the way, that's a coalition of 11 countries that cohesively push out policies um, against the Maduro dictatorship. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, as you know, they really amount to we unilaterally speak out against, we criticize, we do not condone, and really it's all verbal action. Meanwhile, 5.1 million Venezuelans have poured out all across the Southern American continent, and the longer they stall, the worse the situation is going to get. So again, it's, it's that going state of to be the worst refugee crisis in the history of our world if we don't stop the Maduro regime. Simply, absolutely. And I guess moving forward, based on your experience, having you know interacted with people on opposite ends of the political spectrum and in between, this is sort of a it's an open question. But what do you think are the steps to get us that much closer to well, getting rid of this guy? I mean, obviously, this is an extremely difficult question that no one has been able to answer. And I don't claim to have all the answers. I, I 
tend to just analyze and not prescribe because that's what I'm a journalist for. We just like to point out the problems and not have to fix them. Um, but I do have some ideas, you know. The first one is the opposition that we have is rotten and the citizens know it and the citizens don't want them anymore and they don't want to follow them. And they have lost, they regained that spark for a little bit with the Guaido um, swearing in. But at the end of the day, we noticed that it was just a new face with the same characters behind. These are still the parties that we were talking about in the beginning. Ade is still around. So why do we have still the political parties that pissed off Venezuelans to the point of electing Hugo Chavez and they're still the biggest uh, official um, party in Venezuela? That's unacceptable. We need to start from scratch, throw it all away and start from scratch. And I think we do have an opportunity for that. I mean, young people like you, you were born here, but you're interested in it. You're still Venezuelan. I see that I was worried that people forget how to um, have democratic values, but that's not really the case. Young Venezuelans understand what's going on and they understand that the leadership has failed and they want something new and they're willing to put themselves in that leadership position to start new movements. So that's one. We need better leadership in the opposition. We need to get rid of Henry Ramos Alup, Henry Falcón, the fake opposition, because it's important to understand how it worked in Cuba and in the Soviet Union, this type of regimes work by creating an opposition that works for them. So they can go to the international community and say, look, we're a democracy. We go to elections all the time. What do you mean it's a dictatorship? Here's the opposition. We have a picture together. So we need to eliminate that. Second, all options really have to be on the table. I'm a peaceful person. I believe in diplomacy, but you have to be realistic. And we have to learn from Cuba, from the mistakes the international community made with Cuba. So sanctions alone are not going to work. We are lucky enough to see that because we've been witnessing it for almost 70 years in Cuba with a similar regime. The sanctions alone, the embargo did not work. So you would think that we would use that experience to not commit the same mistakes, but it seems that a lot of people are just getting on that truck. So when I say all options on the table, I mean the uh, opposition leadership has never wanted to go near a uh, defected military, defected police officer, any Venezuelan that wants to fight for their country. So I think that should be considered. The leadership should not only be um, going through diplomatic paths, but they should be listening to and meeting with people that have other ideas on how to get freedom. Because it's not crazy to consider a, a force operation when facing a regime like this. I mean, I get that for first worlders, it sounds insane to hear a Latin America want an invasion. Now, I can demand that because I'm not in Venezuela, but there are millions of Venezuelans inside Venezuelan praying every day that the Marines go there and fix everything for them. So I understand that a first worlder can't imagine that mentality where you would be praying for an American military operation to save you. But if there is a place where force should be at least considered, it's against the criminal Castro Chavismo regime.
Yeah, it, it's almost like a tumor that needs to be removed or extracted. Right. And it's important also to, I don't, when I talk about a military operation, I'm not imagining Marines like skydiving in because as an American, I understand that an American mother does not want to see her kid dying to save my other country. Like I wouldn't either. But there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of ex-military Venezuelans, ex-police officers, people that have know the territory, know the situation, and maybe just need a little support. Absolutely. I mean, they've done it before. You know, if you have a coalition of the willing, really of the willing, not something like foreign policy overseas. Right. And people like to give Bay of Pigs as an example, but they didn't have support. So not like Bay of Pigs. No, they were abandoned like Bay of Pigs, but with support. <laughs> and I think it, it's important that we understand what's going on and acknowledge it. The first step in solving any problem is recognizing that there there is one. So you play a very important role and I really hope other people will not stay silent. They have to speak up and let the world know what's going on. There's how how does the phrase go the phrase go in Spanish? It's el que calla torga. Yeah, silence is consent. So I commend you for the work that you're doing. So just one last thing. If people want to keep up with your with your work and also with your Twitter, because your Twitter is very engaging, I must say, <laughs> what, uh, where can they find you? Honestly, the best way to find me and follow my work is through social media. So on Instagram and Twitter, I am Hermania with a G because I work for a lot of different outlets. So the best way to keep in touch with what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter where I share all my shenanigans. <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you heard that. I am Hermania. Again, I will be posting that in the description of this podcast. Hermania, I want to thank you again so much for being a guest today. I think the listeners, will, they, they will have learned a lot moving forward, and this will definitely put them on the right path to understanding, not to sound cliche, but what really is the state of Venezuela. Thank you. Thank you, Rafael, for caring about this, even though you were born here and not forgetting about your home country. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you all in the next one.